Episode number 12 with rapper Tariq Blackthought Trotter. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Tariq Lukeman Trotter, better known as Black Thought, lead MC and co-founder of the hip-hop band The Roots. Born and raised in Philadelphia, Tariq faced some early hardships, losing both of his parents to homicide before the age of 16. But he found his path in the arts, attending Philadelphia's High School for Creative and Performing Arts, also known as the Fame School of Philly. Notable alumni include Boys to Men, Erica Alexander, Leslie Odom Jr., Joey J. Francesco, Jasmine Sullivan, and many, many more. While immersed in this brilliant world of musicianship, Black Thought encountered yet another now-famous alum and co-founder of The Roots, Questlove. Emerging from the Philly soul scene in the late 80s and early 90s, The Roots created a space for themselves that didn't exist during that era, a live hip-hop band. Known for their jazzy and eclectic approach to the genre, their debut album Organics was released and sold independently, and they were quickly signed to DGC Geffen. In 2000, the group won their first Grammy for Best Rap Performance by a Duo or Group for You Got Me, featuring Jill Scott and Erica Baidu. Two additional Grammys and 11 nominations later, today they serve as the house band for The Tonight Show, while still touring extensively and producing projects both collectively and individually, including an upcoming Broadway musical, Black No More, penned by today's guest, Mr. Trotter. Recorded during quarantine, this conversation with Black Thought explores Tariq's origin story, how trauma has always been a motivating factor in his life, the notorious Roots Jam sessions, and how he became conscious about his own destiny. Tariq loads this conversation with an encyclopedia level of hip-hop knowledge, delivered with the same verbal aplomb that keeps him on everybody's top five list. It is with great pleasure to introduce Tariq Black Thought Trotter to the IBI podcast. Um, so Tariq, my man, welcome to oh, the Institute you. of Black Imagination. Thank you. Um, wow, I love it. Like <laughs> to the Black Imagination. I need, you know, I feel like I, I that's why I need I need a degree. <laughs> brother you 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 have a couple of degrees i think i think you have a couple of degrees um but you are you are also that you are the institute of black imagination for sure um and that's why i'm super excited to speak with you because you know i think you know we understand you know there's a you know a cultural understanding of who you are but i know that there's so much more um and that that well of creativity is so deep um, but let's like hop in and get started. Um, what's your superhero origin story? Um, you know, I think uh, often uh, in the case of, of, of heroes or of 
you know, a, a character, a protagonist who, who sort of rises to, to greatness, um, there is some trauma, you know? Mm. And, you know, my life uh, is, was no different in that. Um, you know, often, you know, with the, the Supermans and Batmans and Spider-Mans of, of, of the world, um, you know, they're, they're dealing with loss and, uh, you know, often of a, a parent or of both parents. And that's, that's sort of what my, my origin story is. I, um, you know, I, I grew up in, in Philadelphia. I lost my father at a very, very young age, you know, before I was two years old. And, um, you know, to murder, to homicide in the streets of Philly. And I lost my mother to the same uh, at 15 or 16. So, um, yeah, I feel like that uh, is my origin story. I feel like the, whatever sort of trajectory, whatever path to to this profession or this this livelihood that I, that I, you know, have ever been on, I feel like that began, you know, um, almost in, you know, at, pretty much at birth. Yes, sorry. Uh, I'm doing an interview right now. What do you need help with? Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> Where are your pants at? <laughs> I was with you last night. <laughs> Let me see. Oh. Okay, okay. It's never got stuck before. What's up? Hi. That's Mr. Dario. Hi, Mr. Dario. Hi, what's your name? Tell me what your name is. My name's Tweak Aiden Father. Yep. Ah, okay. The junior. Okay. Yep. All right, man. Be careful. So, um, yeah, man, the uh I feel like the, we're on the whatever path you know, that, 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 that we're on from the very beginning. And, um, you know, sometimes it takes, it takes some time to, to become conscious of the, your destiny or your, your calling, you know, sometimes, um, you know, we're born sort of you know, moving fast and it's, you know, lo locomotion, um, so to speak. And, you know, you, it takes time to reach a, a, a point of, of pause in your life, you know, uh, where you're, uh, it takes time to reach a point of pause in your life before you're able to sort of clearly see, you know, what, what, what path you're supposed to take. And um, more often than not, uh, that pause, you know, comes with, you know, some sort of a traumatic experience, you know what I'm saying? With when you're when you experience loss, when you experience that sort of trauma, um, you know, there's only a, a few different ways that we're able to, uh, as humans to deal with it. And you know, uh, one of the things that I think the Dalai Lama said is, you know, we either internalize it and we, you know, allow it. Well, we always internalize it. It's the ways in which we allow that internalization to you know compel us and sometimes you're compelled to you know to quit or in that pause to you know to give up or sometimes it becomes a, a huge motivating factor for you and uh, in my uh, experience that's that's you know the purpose that that it has served is as a as a motivator 
you know, um, I've, I've always felt like, you know, I've, I have to do something. I have to, you know, to create and to achieve and to, uh, uh, you know, be vocal and, and, and visible and, and, you know, and travel and do all these things that my parents who, you know, the world lost at, you know, both of them at, at, at such a young age that they were never able to do so. Yeah. What was, um, you know, and, 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 and speaking of, of, you know, of loss and transition, like I want to honor your brother who transitioned last week, um, Malik B like, do you want to speak on that? Yeah, 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 sure. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, it's a a very sad loss. Um, it was, a, a, a you know, a shocking sort of blow. Um, just to add on to everything that's been taking place uh, so far in this year, you know, this year has really been, um, yeah, just crazy, man. You know, I, I, uh, you and I worked together on that project that that we did uh, in, I think, in the beginning of February. Uh, in Gabriel, in January. Yeah, and who knew that that was sort of, you know, the last like that was the you know the calm literally like before the shit storm you know so um you know just losing malik man really put in a few things into perspective for me one of which uh being just the 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 people and relationships and 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 the things you know that we take for granted in life and you know being more appreciative and keeping your loved ones and, and those who inspire you, people who you respect, people who you care about, you know, holding them close, uh, as closely as possible for as long as you're able to, um, which I, I feel we did in, in, in Malik's case. Um, you know, we've, I mean, it's, it's been a long, hard, you know, struggle. Um, to keep Malik on the side of, you know, his creative mind, because he was, uh, you know, just as pious as he was, and as disciplined as he was, and 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 as ardent a, a, a follower of of Islam and, and a student of life, he was. Uh, he was he was equally uh, a, a one of the street's disciples, you know. So. Um, that always creates a, a specific dynamic that sometimes plays out as as a, a war within oneself, you know. And um, and I've, I've I've touched on that in some of my lyrics about you know uh, brothers, you know, not only Malik, you know, but brothers of mine who within themselves are fighting an inner jihad, so to speak. And um, and Malik touched on those issues often in his lyrics as well. But uh, you know, we met. Um, in college, I, mean, I went. I chose to go to the university that I did because that's where he had already attended. He was a student there, who uh, my cousin, now manager uh, Sean G, had also attended the same school. And Sean and I had always had a, a competition between you know one another to you know as artists, as athletes, as musicians, as dancers, you know. And he uh, being a year and a half, two years older than than I, um, you know, and taller and more athletic uh, was often, you know, the winner in those competitions. <laughs> um, 
I was a better artist. I was a better visual artist. I was more of a creative than he. And, um, you know, at one point, you know, we both started rapping and he was a better rapper. He made a record and put a record out when we were, you know, kids. I may have been 10 or 11 and he was, you know, 12 or 13 and he, he had a record out. So he sort of had won at that point in the, in that, uh, with regards to that competition. But over the next few years, um, I became better than him. I was, okay. by the time I was, you know, 16, I was, uh, you know, a far better musician, MC than, than he could imagine. And, um, you know, he, so he sort of gave up, but he was, had started college and he said, well, you know, you may be better than me now, uh, but there's someone who I know at, in school that, you know, there's no way you're fucking with this dude. So, um, yeah, that became almost my life's mission. It was like, I have to go to this specific school to battle this specific dude. And it was life-changing. It was, uh, you know, I had, because of, uh, my father uh, had been a, a veteran and because, you know, of the loss that I suffered, um, financial aid, I gotten lots of financial aid. A few schools had given me, had offered me a free ride. Um, you know, all of which I declined and, you know, went to this specific school where I was going to have to, you know, get some work and, and hustle up some money and, you know what I'm saying, like sort of make ends meet in order to, to, to pay tuition at this, at this school. It was Millersville University. Um, I got a little financial aid from the state, but I was going to have to, you know, keep a job and, you know, all this, all these other requirements that I was willing to, to sacrifice uh, just so I could be there to battle this specific uh, uh, rapper. And um, I got, I got out of high school. I got myself into like the, the early admissions program where you could sort of, you start classes, I think in the end of July or something. So it was okay. a month or so after I graduated high school, I was there, you know, starting in the summer program at, at this college. And he was there, you know, hadn't gone home for the for summer break. And that was my mission. Like the, the day I got there, it was like, I have to find this guy. I'm rapping against him. I have to, I have to shut Sean down, you know? And um, I got there, there was a party that night. And uh, yeah, like my, I pre-gamed. Like I, you know, I freestyled a little bit with some of my friends who were who were there, who had also, uh, you know, come up as part of the same program. I freestyled my whole way over to the, you know, to the the party to get myself, you know, get my energy up. And when as soon as I found them, yeah, you know, we started battling, and it lasted a few hours. It was like a three-hour ordeal. Um, that uh, the, my my range. Uh, the broadness of 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 the strokes that I was able to take as a as an MC, I feel like is what got me over the top. You know, um, Malik was uh, you know being being that street rapper. He was hugely influenced by uh, you know Cool G Rap, Big Daddy Kane. Um, you know, a certain sort of like aggressive gangster mentality, uh, lyricism, which I was as well. I was also from that same school. But um, having met Questlove in high school, he exposed me to just different, you know, musicality. And I was also influenced by, you know, more political uh, music as well as more bohemian, you know, sort of abstract thought. 
of the Tribe Called Quest and Jungle Brothers and De La Soul and, you know, the Public Enemy and the X-Clan and lots of other sort of influence, um, you know, Caribbean, uh, the fact that I was able to, to, to do, you know, to chat like someone in the Jamaican dance hall, I feel like, you know, that range that I was able to display is what got me over. But um, I also realized that it was no easy feat and, you know, Malik was no joke. And I felt immediately that, you know, we uh, would potentially make one another better. So uh, I was in school and Questlove was, uh, you know, an hour and a half or so away um, at a different school. And I felt like, okay, if I'm gonna, you know, continue to make music, why don't I just have Quest, you know, send, send me beat tapes and, you know, you and I do this thing here in school and, you know, we would become sort of this version of the roots. And that's what we did. And then eventually we left that school and went back to Philly and we all sort of joined forces and, um, you know, got a record deal and, and that old thing. The rest, you know, is sort of history. That's amazing. What was that experience like meeting Questlove in high school? Um, because you guys went to an art school. Am I correct? Yeah, we went, went to an art school. Went to the high school for creative and performing arts, which is uh, pretty much the Philadelphia version of a LaGuardia, or you know, um, we've always called it like you know the Fame School of Philly. Um, lots of people who have gone on to greatness were there at the same time. Uh, Erica Alexander and quite a few actors, you know, really brilliant actors, um, music, uh, you know, people who were legends at the age of 15 or 16 already, like Christian McBride and Joey DeFrancesco um, were there. Um, Boys to Men was, you know, forming, Boys to Men were members of a, of a couple different uh, vocal groups and that had disbanded and were, you know, sort of beginning to become Boys to Men at that time. Um, Amel LaRue, uh, Fatine in Asia, who, you know, well, Fatine, who uh, is one half of, his family group, uh, Kindred Family Soul. Um, and the list goes on and on. We were all there at the same time. I was a visual arts major, um, but I was immersed in this sort of, uh, uh, you know, mu just brilliant musicianship. And um, it, it was a huge influence sort of on what it was that I was doing. I was, I was a rapper, but I, I was never in a group per se up until that point. I didn't have a DJ or a band or someone that I rapped with or any of that. Um, and so it was exciting. And I've been an art student for some time at that point, you know, all throughout elementary school and in middle school and now in high school um, as an art major, it, it, I, it uh, honestly wasn't that engaging for me anymore. Like it was, mm -hmm. I could do any sort of art, visual art with my eyes closed. I could paint, I could draw, I was a sculptor. I did graphic and commercial art. I did, you know, anything, you know, anything with regards to, you know, visual art just sort of, you know, came natural to me. And um, the musicianship, uh, you know, that, that I was sort of seeing uh, you know, come, come to fruition around me every day uh, became just a huge, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know, it was almost like bait. And it was, uh, I would, I, I, I started cutting my art classes. I would, you know, say, I'll, I'll make this, I'll, I can do this project, you know, during my lunch period or during my gym period. <laughs> Instead, I'm gonna go and, you know, watch this free Boys to Men concert. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I'm gonna go and listen to, you know, Amel LaRue sing with this cellist during this next 45 minutes. And you know what I'm saying? So um, 
it uh yeah you know that's what what um you know i did and i met quest love though at some point i was being suspended from school i think or i was either coming back from a suspension i was in trouble i was in the principal's office um one of my hustles that i had in school was i would i would uh you know sell arts and crafts i would do uh i would acid wash you know uh, your jeans you know what i'm saying for you or you know i would uh i would do hand painted jean jackets um, I would do hand, I would do, you know, plaster sculptures of, I don't know, like African masks or, you know, uh, uh, the bust of, you know, like a statue head or something. And I would put those on necklaces. Um, stopwatches were like a, a thing that we would do. And I would take stopwatches apart and then reassemble them using different color pieces from other stopwatches. So you could have, you know, a one of a kind sort of you know, stopwatch around your neck. And I would sell all these things. I would also sell um, tokens because they would give us free tokens in order to get to school on public transportation. And I lived, you know, in relative walking distance from the school. So I would sell my tokens to people who lived further out and who didn't get their tokens for free. Um, and then I also had a job job. Like I worked um, in a pizza place. Like I, I would go, I would work as a dishwasher wherever someone would hire me sort of under the table because I was only... 13 at the time, I think, and you had to be 14 to work legally. So before I had my working papers, I would just go and work wherever I could sort of, you know, make some dough. So I had very many hustles so I could, you know, provide for myself and so I could buy little pieces of jewelry and, you know, the sneakers and keep my hair cut and all that sort of thing um, because I was very independent. So for whatever reason, I was in trouble in school and I was in the principal's office and Questlove comes in. I don't recall what he was doing in the office. I think he was just coming to maybe drop off an apple and you know what I'm saying, pretty much say, hey, how you guys doing? You know what I mean? He was like that dude. He was like, you know, a charmer who uh, uh, would have never been uh, in there for any other reason. It's not like he was in trouble at all. But he came in and he had on this jean jacket that had uh, uh, almost a tie-dye hand painted though um psychedelic peace sign on the back of of this jacket and he had a, a hand carved wooden uh fist medallion around his neck with some beads that you know looks like the fist on the back of the afro pick that he wears all the time so that iconic sort of black power fist and i immediately went to who the fuck is selling hand painted jean jackets and black power medallions on my watch, like that, all of that, that was my sort of realm, you know? So um, I struck up a conversation based on him wearing those items. And he told me that these were like real deal items. These were, you know, from the sixties and stuff that he had acquired from his mother, um, who at one point was in a band with his father and, you know, some other, like they were, his parents used to be a band much like uh, Sly and the Family Stone. So oh, he dope. Up he grew up in a band, you know, that was, uh, his father is a legendary doo-wop musician who, you know, is in the, the Philadelphia Music Hall of Fame for his, his contribution as a doo-wop artist. And then his family went on to become like, yeah, the Philly version of Sly and the Family Stone. They were called Congress Alley. And yeah, he basically shut my shit down by saying like, yeah, you know, the stuff you're doing, you're approximating, you know what I mean? Like uh. this like what this is, like this is the real deal. This is from Congress Alley on some real, like my parents were down with the Panthers and you know, 
So, um, yeah, that we, we immediately hit it off. And he also would walk around school with this little miniature keyboard that was one of the first versions of a sampler. And it was the first time I'd seen anyone sample, you know, uh, soul music or jazz music or, you know, classic rock music and, you know, sort of show me, uh, like deconstruct the way hip hop beats were created. So he was able to sort of break down, you know, all my favorite music, how it sort of had come to be. And uh, I thought that was uh, amazing. It was just something that really intrigued me. So we started working together. We became a, a, a group, you know, and, and hit it off. He was also able to recreate any drum beat that I threw at him. If I said, oh, you know, I love, you know, this Public Enemy record or this Big Daddy Kane thing or this thing that I heard the Ultramagnetic MCs do, um, you know, some of the stuff he wasn't familiar with uh, because he hadn't listened to very much hip hop, but he was always familiar with that from which the hip hop had come. So I would play him the record and he would say, they ain't make that shit up. That's from, you know, James Brand. And he would play it. And it was just like, we were able to sort of educate one another. He broadened my, you know, uh, he broadened my perspective with regards to, you know, just, just the origin of music and, and, and my musicality. And I put him on to, you know, just what hip hop was sort of uh, evolving into, you know, I, I you know, I played uh, Public Enemy and NWA and, you know, music that he wouldn't dare you know, take home or, you know, attempt to listen to in his very strict household. Um, so, yeah, it was a, we, we were it was a fascinating experience um, for both of us. You know? So so <laughs> so Philly has like this ridiculous roster of musicians and talent and entertainers like, you know, yourself, Quest, Erica Badu, Jill Scott, Jasmine Sullivan, Will Smith, Patti LaBelle. Like, what the fuck is in the water in Philly? Like, what, what is fit? Like, why? <laughs> why? I think, I think, um, you know, Philly has gone through different periods in its musical evolution, you know? Um, there was a time during which the Philly soul scene was, you know, dominated the music industry. And, you know, after that, um, it sort of, you know, it, it fizzled out. It became, you know, it, it, it had influenced the world in a way where people sort of picked up where Philly had left off, so to speak. And, you know, we lost very many of the greats. And, um, you know, there, there, there was no longer the same sort of scene, you know, the scene there uh, had lost um, some impact. And then there was a reemergence of, you know, of Philly's presence with, uh, you know, the, the advent of, of Three Times Dope and Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and, you know, uh, Cash Money and, and, DJ and Marvelous Marv. And, you know, that I think that that re resurgence of the Philly sound um, or of Philly's uh, uh, presence um, in, in the music scene came from uh, just these iconic DJs that we had. And it was during a time where there was an annual competition, um, very many annual conferences and competitions to see who the best DJs in the world sort of were. And for, you know, quite a few consecutive years, the world supremacists or the best 
DJs in the world had come from Philadelphia. So, you know, that, you know, garnered some attention and Philly was able to sort of rise like a phoenix from the flames during that era. But that, you know, became a thing of the past at one point and, you know, lost uh, its its relevance and, and, and lost its impact as, you know, those DJs, you know, some of them went on to, to beyond greatness. You know, we're, we're talking in the case of, you know, the Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff and you know, Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, which, you know, Will Smith began as essentially DJ Jazzy Jeff's hype man. Like Jeff was the attraction, the DJ. And that's the story of hip hop, you know, in its essence, you know, from the beginning, from the Bronx days, parties in the park. It was always about the DJ and their records and how they could rock the party. And the MC was, you know, more of a novelty, someone who it was your job to interact with the audience, get the crowd, you know, more engaged, call and response, and let everyone know who the DJ was that was spinning. Just like in the, uh, you know, in the case of Jamaican dance hall, you know what I'm saying? The, 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 the person who was chatting, right? Uh, their job is to big up the sound system. This is, you know, the sound system that you're listening to right now. Like this is the movement, you know what I mean? So that you don't lose sight of that. And, you know, over time it became more about, you know, the, the MC and more about the narrative of, of the specific storyteller. Um, and in Philly's case, it, it was no different. But yeah, like I said, it happened in, in periods. And, you know, and there, there was, during that, that time, there was also Schooly D, who I, who I forgot to mention, who was, a, you know, a, a huge innovator with regards to just gangster rap and, and um, you know, sort of do-it-yourself, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna play my own drum machine. I'm gonna rap over my own beats. I'm gonna you know tell my own sort of story about you know my neighborhood and where I come from. And that is what begat uh, the gangster rap of of you know the West Coast and and of the South and all that. That came from Schooly D. Um, so yeah, during that period that took place, and then it died down again. And there was once again no platform in Philadelphia and. Uh, you know, in, in all of these instances, there is a, I feel like it's almost fight or flight. There's a survival instinct that kicks in um, with the, the acknowledgement of, of, you know, one having to create a scene where, where one, where a scene didn't exist. You know what I mean? So we had to sort of create uh, a scene for ourselves. And during that era, um, that, that is what we did. You know, we've always, um, it's, you know, the same way black parents often have to tell their their children, you know, you have to work harder. You have to be twice as good because you're, you know, you're black. You know what I'm saying? You don't have the advantage of white privilege or of any of the other privileges that, you know, some of your, your classmates, some of your counterparts might, uh, you know, benefit from. So you have to work twice as hard. Um, you know, and, and you're working against sort of the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, we were, Philly was was not unlike that case. It was like, you know, we're from Philly. The fact that, you know, people are from New York and from, you know, other places where a scene does exist, um, you know, they don't have to be as as dope as as we are. Or, you know, if, if I'm equally as skilled as someone who's coming from, you know, uh, New York or LA at the time, or, you know, someplace where there was a platform, um, then I wouldn't have had the same sort of opportunities. So, I, you know, I took it very serious to, uh, you know, seriously uh, that I had to be, you know, just one step ahead of them and just sort of say a step uh, ahead of the game. So that's what we did. And, um, you know, it sort of, it, it, it paid off. 
we um you know we we exercise very much discipline as musicians and and with us not only were we were we from philly we were you know we didn't have a look which you know <laughs> hip-hop had a lot to do at the time with a, a look and the way you looked so we didn't that, that aesthetic was not you know a thing for us we looked crazy um because we were just a ragtag group of you know individuals who we you know we saw eye to eye in like on the with regards to the music but um just different philosophies and different styles and you know we 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 clashed very much in that way so we didn't have the look um we our sound though it was it was something that resonated with people and something that folks were able to sort of uh uh engage with it wasn't it we didn't sound like anything that was taking place at the time because we were a live band there was live instrumentation and that wasn't a thing you know what i'm saying no matter what you know some people may tell you that there was a bunch of bands hip-hop bands you know in 1992 1993 they were not <laughs> um, so yeah you know just carving out sort of a, a path for ourselves where again where there was none um just took a little bit more elbow grease you know um but it made it made us more solid uh, as as a unit and um as MCs and as musicians. And I feel like that's, you know, that's what's in the water in Philly, you know, the, the, the do for self mentality. Um, and you're Erica, she's Erica's from Dallas, but she, um, you know, when she, during the time when she was, you know, had to make those crucial decisions about, you know, becoming a musician and, you know, sort of defining her, her identity um, as an artist, um, lots of, lots of that inspiration came from the time she spent in Philly absolutely like with us and with all those other people that you named jasmine sullivan has been like she i remember she was 11 years old being smuggled like snuck into the venue so she could perform at our jam sessions and then you know like swept out the door immediately because she was 11 or 12 years old but with this powerful voice and um yeah you know just you know that our our sessions have become that sort of platform that catapulted the careers of, of yeah many everyone you named as well as the you know music soul childs and 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 you know Bilal's and I mean the list goes so many people came through. I remember John Legend, you know he was a student at University of Penn, and he would come and you know try and get into our jam sessions and often be turned away for whatever reason. Like you know go go figure. Um, I, I wasn't at the door. Had I been at the door, that would never have been the case. But um, I know people who remember turning him away. And um, I feel like that was a motivating factor for him. And you know, that that's part of what propelled him to greatness. So when you when you have the door closed in your face or when, you know, when you 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 feel an opportunity is is that close, is within reach, within your grasp, and you know, you still can't get your fingertips on it, um, again, it's gonna it's gonna compel you in one or two different ways. Either you're gonna give up or you're gonna say, you know, fuck that and and you're not gonna settle until you sort of achieve what it is that that you you feel you 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 were meant to achieve bro you that's like perfect like i want to talk about this jam session um what like walk us through like what this was some of the people that came through you mentioned you know Bilal and uh you know john legend being turned away and jasmine sullivan but like i think 
from listening to what you just said, was the jam session something that you all felt you needed to have, right? This platform or like this space? And and what was that space? Yeah, the jam session was definitely something that we felt we needed to have. Um, you know, it was something that started with us just rocking out really um, in Questlove's living room, essentially, in an empty living room where uh, Scott Storch, who was the original keyboardist for The Roots, who's, you know, going on to become an iconic hip hop producer, he would be in there playing stuff on the Fender Rhodes. And, um, you know, we had a quest would be on the drums or sometimes um, a producer uh, named uh, uh, Kilo would be playing beats on the drum machine or another producer who was down with the roots uh, from very early on. His name was Chaos, Kilo and Chaos. They would be, you know, making beats on the drum machine. And Scott would just play live, you know, Fender Rhodes, um, you know, organ to it. And we would just rap and just rap and rap and rap and rap. And it was it was very much about honing our skills as freestyle artists and honing our skills as uh, improv musicians. And what it, you know, what the jam session became was something where there was no, uh, you couldn't come and perform written material and you couldn't come and perform, you know, that was lyrics or music. It was about living in the moment and creating something on the spot. And from there we took it to, uh, an apartment that we had rented out. Um, we rented out a, a three-story uh, beautiful building in Harlem, um, on the east side of Harlem. Uh, I think it was 114th between First and Pleasant. And um, in this space, I mean, the floors, you know, the wooden floors cost more than, you know, any of us probably had ever seen at that time. <laughs> and, you know, we had the first few jam sessions in New York up there in this spot and um the landlord who lived in the area was always so concerned about his floors that he would come in and he would be like following people around with you know coasters and ashtrays and putting felts under chairs and that whole thing and it just it was it was too much for us to continue to do it there so um we did it there a few times and we took it to a studio in mint in midtown that you know uh, i think it, at great expense um, and, and it wasn't very convenient for people to sort of get to. And then we forged a relationship with, uh, you know, the people who now own uh, the Brooklyn Bowl franchise. Um, they had a small spot right outside the, the Holland Tunnel, which was super convenient for us to get to because we were commuting from Philly. Um, and it was called the Wetlands. And at the Wetlands, we did, uh, you know, this jam session. I think it was every Sunday night. Um, it became, you know, a, a mainstay on the New York hip hop scene. And lots of, you know, every MC would come through there. It was a who's who of, of MCs, essentially. And I remember one night there was, uh, you know, it, there was myself, Common, uh, Talib Kweli, J. Ru the Damager, um, the, the guys from Black Moon and some of the boot camp click dudes, uh, Cannabis, uh, Brand Nubian. Um, Big L, who this night, I think his performance at this particular jam session may have been his very last performance because a, a few days later we lost him tragically to, you know, uh, to, to uh, homicide up, up in Harlem. This was Sadat X had brought uh, Big L through and it was a huge buzz because Big L, he was definitely a force to be reckoned with. There was talk at the time of him having, uh, you know, recently done a deal to join forces with, with uh 
with Rockefeller Records. So he was, you know, joining forces with Jay-Z and we knew he was sort of going on to greatness. So every MC in the building that night had, you know, a lot to prove. So that whole, the competition, the competitive spirit that I had on the night that I met, you know, Malik was very much, you know, the, the, what we all felt that night. Um, I say that to say that was one of the first nights that almost the whole performance lineup was MCs and male MCs and none of the, none of the women who were down with the roots um, at the time, the Jazzy Fat Nasties, New Ra, uh, Jaguar Wright, um, you know, the Jasmine Sullivan's, Jill Scott's, like none of them had an opportunity to get on the mic. So they decided after that night, okay, we're going to do something completely different and we're going to, you know, create a platform that is specifically, you know, about the female energy and artistry. And, you know, it's it won't be exclusive to females, but we're not going to have another event where, you know, women who, you know, were supposed to perform, who in their mind, you know, were entitled to perform, um, didn't get the opportunity to. So um, that's what begat uh, the Black Lily. And the Black Lily is what became the iconic sort of jam session that we then, we did it there at the Wetlands. We also took it back to Philly to a venue called the Five Spot. And that's what, you know, became like the real deal. That's what the, when you people say the Roots Jam Sessions, the I, they're referring to the Black Lily, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, that that came from yeah, the Jazzies and Jaguar and, and New and, and, and that whole crew. That's a, that's that's amazing. Um, and and what time period are we talking? This is like early nineties, mid nineties. Yeah, this is this is early. This is this is well early to mid nineties, early to mid nineties. I want to say you know, uh, ninety four, ninety five, something like that. Amazing. Um, so, I mean, because you started out in the visual arts and you work across a multitude of platforms, like what did text or the word give you access to and i think you know even when you spoke about your range i'm sure that your visual sense really influenced the way you spoke yeah you know you tra- mapped that onto text but what did text give you access to or the word give you access to um for me man uh you know the arts have always sort of been the arts and um I've always, you know, enjoyed the possibility of of crossing disciplines, right? So, you know, if even when I'm writing a rhyme, it's, you know, it's visual in that, you know, the way in which I write it, like my handwriting is is artistic, you know? Um, you know, the, the, the creative sense, the artistic eye is applicable across the board. You know, um, in the way that, you know, I, I plate my food in the way that, you know, I lay my clothes out in the morning when, I, when I'm going to get dressed, um, you know, in the in the way that that I speak and, 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 and deliver, you know, the word and, and also in the way that I receive it. So, um, yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, that again, that being something that was instilled uh, in me at such a young age, it has, uh, you know. It, it affects the way I see the world. You know, um, we only know the world uh, based on our perception, right? The way I see the world is different from the way you or anyone else sees it. You know, um, 
so yeah, the, I've just been blessed enough to, to, to see the world in a way that I'm able to see and able to understand the, uh, you know, the artistry in, in, in pretty much in, in all things, you know? Um, so yeah, I feel like that, that, that discipline, um, it carries over into whatever it is that, that I'm gonna, that I'm doing, you know? And, and the more you're exposed to, the more you read, the more, you know, movement you see, the more you see people dance and the, the you know, the more you sort of absorb, uh, language and, and, and musicality, especially, um, you know, in, in, in like in foreign languages, you know, mm. uh, there's something to be said about, about, you know, reading word that you don't know, you know, it, reading word written in a language that you don't speak and listening to music, you know, listening to people, you know, uh, converse in a language other than, you know, your own, because you're able, there's something that's immediately removed from it. And you're dealing with just the fundamentals of, of, of the humanity of what it is that they're doing. And, and you're, you have to, all you have to rely upon is the universal language in that movement or in that, you know, painting or in that, you know, font or in that writing, in that language. Um, so yeah, there's something to be said about that. And the more, the, the more broad the range of, of, of sort of input that, that you're exposed to, um, you know, the, the, the more, the, the more in, that, that informs your creative self. And, you know, some, sometimes it's not a conscious effort. It's not like, Oh, you know, I'm going to, because I saw this and heard this and read this thing, I'm going to do this now. That's not the way it, it manifests itself um, at, at best in a, in an organic way. You know what I'm saying? And it comes out, um, you know, you don't, you're not, uh, you know, as conscious of you don't really realize the ways in which it has influ influenced you until it sort of has, you know, um, I guess that's the best way to explain it, but yeah, you know, um, that's, uh, I don't, that, I guess that, that might, that, that nutshells my, uh, you know, uh, the impact of, of text and written word and spoken word upon what it is that, that I do, you know, and, but once you become, uh, conscious of that once you realize that it's almost like an insatiable thirst you know what i mean and, mm -hmm. and you want more like you just you you naturally uh sort of pursue um um just more information and you know I, that's that's what I've, I've become i've become just like a almost a glutton for information and you know you can get it in in all forms sometimes it's from a book sometimes it's just you know sitting there with the television on all night and my wife would be like you know why don't you turn the tv off like why are you just you know why are you watching this show this, this is not even in english you know what i mean and it's like i'm not even watching it's you know i'm i'm my attention is my focus is so far beyond or so much deeper than what you see on the screen that you know what I'm saying I can't I can't even really explain it I'm just waiting for that one you know motion that one image that one word or syllable or to hear one thing pronounced in one specific way that is going to be a catalyst for the next thing that I go to create you know what I'm saying and and you don't I mean when you know when you when you hear it or when you see it when you feel it then you know that that was it and then you sort of go I'm able to go back to my to my process you know yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, from listening to you that there is there's a set of lenses um, that you're looking 
at the world through. And one of them, I think, is, you know, and I don't want to assume, but like spirit, it, it, it seems like this really open channel. Um, mm-hmm. What is your spiritual practice if there is one? Or how do you think of spirit in your work? Um, you know, I was born into, you know, an Islamic situation. My family, my, both my parents were Muslim when I was born. So I, I you know, grew up as Muslim. And, um, you know, I, I was exposed, though, to, you know, very much more than Islam. Uh, you know, I, I was exposed to, to Christianity and, and Buddhism and, you know, Hinduism and, and you know, just uh, a, a broad range of, of faith and, you know, belief systems. And I feel like they all sort of inform, you know, what it, what it is that I believe in you know, today. Um, I, I, it, I mean, if I have to say I, I identify with one system of, of beliefs, um, I would still say it's, it's, you know, it's Islam. It's, it's, it's Islam, you know, because it's Islam. If I'm dealing with Islam as, you know, a religion based on submission to peace, Submission mm. to you know uh, a, a, a higher force than than ourselves, and 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 to peace, um, which at its you know in its essence that's that's what Islam is. That's that's what you know Islam means. So um, that's that's what it means to me, and because that's what I what I submit to. Yeah, I I, I would say Islam. Um, I, now what I, I if I say I, I'm if. I'm probably the least orthodox Muslim, you know, that I know, and um, you know, almost you know, so at sometimes to to a fault. But again, I feel like that has you know, probably more to do with uh, what I've been exposed to, and you know, just my personal experience. You know, yeah, I wanna I wanna um, switch over to uh, Black No More. Okay, yeah. The musical. So, you know, Jasmine invited me <laughs> to, to see your musical. And it was yeah. like early. I was like, it was like some something crazy in the morning. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, like, I've walked all the way to the west side of Manhattan in Midtown. It was like was it Playwrights Horizons? Um, it was at uh, uh, a Manhattan Theater Club. Yeah, at the Signature Center. Signature, signature, signature theater. Yeah. And like Brandon Victor Jackson, or um, Dixon. Yeah. Comes out, and bro, I just was fucking blown away. Like this music was insane. It was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And I mean, I don't know if you know that I have a background in in theater and musical theater. Yeah, in particular. yeah, I do. I, yeah. So I'm like, uh, this is <laughs> this is a fucking hit. Like this is sick. So so tell us, like, why did you decide to write a musical? And yeah, like, yeah, tell us this process. Um, Black No More was brought to us, was brought to the roots um, as a collective um, by uh, the the director, Scott Elliott, who at the time uh, had a 
just had joined forces with the writer, um, you know, John Ridley. And John Ridley had just come off of, uh, you know, a magnificent run, Oscar award winning, uh, the multiple award winning run as a, you know, a writer for his work, um, 12 Years a Slave. Um, and I, I am an actor, you know, too. That's another one, you know, just another creative space that I sort of, you know, sometimes work in. So I had uh, just done a, a couple films. I think at this time, I may have just done uh, the James Brown biopic with uh, with Chadwick Boseman. Um, so whatever it was, I was coming off of an acting job and I thought it like in my mind, I thought, oh, Ridley saw, you know, me in this thing, whatever it was that I just done. And he wants to do a film with us. Like he wants to do, you know, a movie probably starring me and then we'll probably do music. And so, you know, um, we were taking this meeting with, uh, with John Ridley. Um, I have a manager, a theatrical manager um, named Lillian LaSalle in New York City who I, you know, sort of just gotten with um, maybe a year or so prior. And the reason I decided to work with a theatrical manager as opposed to uh, a big agency was because of my experience with the agencies. I was uh, with the William Morris agency for, you know, quite a few years. Um, and then I moved on to the Paradigm agency. And I feel like with agencies, um, you know, it's a, they're, they're like, their list of priorities, you know what I'm saying, is almost based on uh, just a different set of criteria than, um, you know, than, than what was working for me. I needed more personal attention and I needed someone to sort of help me. I mean, I need someone to go to bat for me, you know, to get acting jobs and to, you know, to bring, to bring me the quality of work opportunities that I felt I, I deserved. And, and especially at William Morris, I felt like it was just too much competition. You know what I mean? Mm. There were, you know, there's only, it's not like there's an abundance of work for black actors, you know what I mean? With the specific aesthetic. So um, yeah, you know, jobs, I felt like I was getting the, I was getting trickle down opportunities. And there was quite honestly, though I had worked as an actor at, you know, during my time at both of those agencies, um, all the work that I did was based on my own personal relationships. And it was, you know, I didn't get any jobs sort of because of my association with them as agents. So I started working with this, uh, you know, a manager, you know, where I could sort of receive more of that close attention and here in, in New York City on the East Coast, as opposed to, you know, the, this uh, a Los Angeles or bi-coastal conglomerate sort of deal. So she was also representing someone who was in Hamilton, who's an original cast of, of Hamilton. And she said, hey, you know, I know you're a musician. I know you're into, you know, I'm, you have this certain thing that you're into. I know one of the things you're not into is musicals. So disclaimer, full transparency, this is a musical, but I think you're going to love it. You know what I'm saying? I have another client who's in this show. I really think you should go and see this show. And I said, all right, I'm going to see it. I said, you know, what's the, what type of music? And she said, most of the dialogue is rap. And that's, and she lost me. And I was like, ah, fuck that. I'm not going to just, no, no, no thanks. So then um, I went and took a meeting with a friend of mine um, at a record company at uh, Atlantic Records. You know, shout out to Atlantic Records. I don't know if you see in the background, I, I got my, uh, these are, a gold plaque, a platinum plaque. These Come are on. Hamilton. These are Hamilton plaques behind me. 
but this is before I, I become a believer. So a friend of mine, you know, uh, Riggs Morales, who's, you know, a brother to Lin-Manuel Miranda, he said, hey, we're doing this project. We're about to, you know, create some music, an original cast recording, and then a whole separate album that's going to be inspired by and based on this, uh, this Broadway show. And I'm like, yo, cool, you know, I'm down, like, let's do it. What is it? And he's like, it's Hamilton. I was like, oh, I keep hearing about this Hamilton show. You know what I mean? And he's like, yo, you should really check it out. And, you know, I know you're not into musicals, but you should really go and see it. This one, it hits different. You know what I mean? So I was like, all right, I might go and see it. Just so I have now a point of reference, because, you know, he's the second person who made mention of this show that I hadn't seen. So I couldn't, you know, really speak on it. Um, and then we took the, the meeting with John Riley and Scott Elliott. And this was probably, if not later on that day, it was the very next day. I feel like it was later on that day. And, um, you know, they're about to pitch this project, an adaptation of this book called Black No More that was written in uh, 1929, 1930, came out in 32, written by George Shuler, um, who was, you know, the original, I want to say troll of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, you know, good thing, you know, he didn't have social media back then because it probably would have done him more damage than good. But he, he trolled, you know, the Renaissance through with his essays and with the satire that he wrote. And this was early, uh, you know, black, this was, uh, you know, Afrofuturist science fiction, you know, which was, you know, cutting edge for, you know, th that era. Um, if not the first, it's some of the earliest, you know? So, um, yeah, you know, they, they're going into the story of the book and, ooh, and then you know, one of the first things that they said during this, essentially uh, during what was a pitch was, well, like, you know, the show Hamilton? And I was like, fuck, like, I keep hearing about this show Hamilton. Yes, I've heard about Hamilton. I haven't seen it. You know what? I'm going to go and see it tonight just so I know what you're talking about. And I have a point of, you know, of reference. So that's what I did. I went and saw the show and, you know, met the cast uh, immediately after and I fell in love. It was like, wow, I was my head was blown off mm. you know what I mean? by just the, the freshness and just, you know, the originality and the uniqueness of, you know, Lynn's take on musical theater and on American history. And that just, you know, presented, it just created endless possibilities uh, as far as the potential of, of how this uh, story could evolve. And it was something that I was all in on, you know, immediately. So we started, you know, working it out, working on it, um, started taking meetings back and forth. Uh, uh, and the Roots, you know, being a diverse collective with lots going on, Questlove has been super busy with all sorts of other stuff, putting out New York Times bestsellers and, you know, producing and directing and, you know, as is our manager, who is, you know, my cousin, who's also an executive at Live Nation. And, you know, he, we're not the only artist that he manages. He's a producer in his own right. And, you know, everyone's just busy. And no one was able to really focus on the development of this project and to attend the meetings and to rock it out in the way that I was. So um, it sort of took precedence, um, you know, over what it, the, over all the other stuff that I had going on in that it became a passion project of mine and we continued to meet on it. And um, I recorded, you know, some of the first uh, music just inspired by that project. And then we were all sort of hooked and drawn in and began to, you know, do different drafts of the story and different drafts of the music. And, you know, years went by, um, you know, after a couple of years working on the project, 
um, well, within the first year or so, we got a grant from the National Endowment of the Arts to sort of, you know, to build it out a little bit more. And, um, you know, after working on it for a couple of years, we started uh, to workshop the project. And at that point, you know, um, not that the rest of the roots had lost interest, but they just had other shit to do. So it sort of, it, it, beca it became, you know, my invested interest. It became like my project, at least with regards to the roots involvement. Um, and I partnered up with my good friend, Anthony Tidd, who's the musical director at the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia, which is, you know, not unlike the Lincoln Center uh, in New York. And, um, you know, he's been a long collaborator with The Roots, and I know that it was within his wheelhouse as he plays every instrument and, you know, composes, arranges on his own. Um, it was a no-brainer. He's someone who I've known for 30 years. We were able to, you know, work together seamlessly. So I'm able to articulate what it is that I need, you know, to arrive at, and he's able to, you know, at least uh, approximate it. So um, we we like peanut butter and jelly in regards to to working on this project. And yeah, before I knew it, um, you know, I had essentially composed, arranged the majority of a Broadway musical. What began as me, you know, in my in my mind, it was a story that would be told, you know, through hip hop very much in the way that that Hamilton was, but it became more traditional in that, you know, we began, you know, as I worked on the scenes and worked on, you know, the dialogue and the arc of the characters, it it, it sort of expanded beyond just hip hop and it became more of, of a story of the evolution of American music in that way. And I feel like every genre is at some point covered, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that's that's what it sort of evolved to be, and we grew. And I was still on the the you know the the other side of the table. I was on the production side of the table for the first couple workshops. Um, I was able to you know I had a say in the casting. I have you know input across the board. So I put you know someone who I knew could sing and act and rap, um, Yasin Bey. I put him in to you know the role of you know one of the main characters. Um, for, for one of the earlier workshops, and he was—he did a brilliant job. But when it was time to workshop it again, he uh, was less than available. He lives in different countries, and you know, he just—the schedules didn't sync up. The planets and stars didn't align. He wasn't able to do it when we, you know, had to workshop it. So I cast someone else who I knew was a brilliant actor, who you know was less of a musician, but you know, his acting chops would surely accommodate for you know, his inability to rap and sing as well as Yassine. And that was Michael K. Williams, who was, you know, out of this world. So I cast him and it was the same sort of deal. And um, yeah, you know, in, in a pinch, I had to step into the role for one of these readings. And, you know, I mean, no one's gonna be able to read my material that I wrote, you know, with all the nuances that you would have if I do it. So it became a no brainer that I was going to have to sort of step into this role and that, you know, I, I was going to have to, you know, be the Lin-Manuel Miranda of, of this project. And the story of Black No More is, um, it's a love story. It's a, a story of, of, you know, of, uh, I mean, it, it, it deals with, you know, race and sexuality and, 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 you know, privilege and uh you know just all sorts of disparities um you know all sorts of uh age old institutions american institutions um and just a way of thinking 
that is very, very, very many conversations that are much needed that were super important to to take place and for us to have, uh, you know, five, six years ago when we started sort of our journey, but that uh, all of which uh, you have over over that time frame become far more important, far more timely and, and, and urgent. And you know, they've gained momentum and urgency um, as the years have sort of gone on. And I feel like now more than ever, it's uh, it's a project that, you know, the world sort of needs to see and that America needs to see because, you know, in very many ways, it's a tearing off of the Band-Aid. You know what I mean? Hmm. If, and that Band-Aid is on a bullet wound anyway. So it's the Band-Aid on the bullet wound being torn off. And it's, you know, a language, um, you know, that has never been used on, you know, on Broadway. It's it's a, a style of, of movement and a certain, um, a level of minimalism that, you know, we're not used to in Broadway theater, you know? So I feel like um, just the approach to telling this story, these stories, the stories of these characters in this, in this, in this uh, project are um, groundbreaking. And, you know, I feel like in, in very many regards, there's going to be a breath of fresh air when it, when it does come to, to stage. It was going, you know, we were supposed to open um, September, October. So now it's looking like very possibly next spring. Um, but yeah, that being said, it'll be even more important and more urgent, you know, at, at that time. So um, we have a dream team. We've got a brilliant cast. Uh, you know, uh, Brandon is magnificent. Um, you know, we got Bill T. Jones as the choreographer. Um, and, and doing it with the new group and, and, and Scott Elliott and just the chemistry between Ridley and myself as writers and me and my partner, uh, you know, Anthony Tidd as composer Rangers. It's just, it's really the best equation that I could possibly have asked for, for this being both John Ridley and my first time out, so to speak, you know, stepping out uh, to accept the challenge to do something uh, in, in, in the realm of, of musical theater. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm excited for, at this point, you know, about 1,500 people have seen it, but they've seen it, you know, as you have uh, in workshop. And, you know, I'm just excited for people to see it completely on its feet and, you know, to, to have to deal with, you know, uh, all of the material that this, this project is going to force people to, to deal with. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, bro. I'm I'm fucking excited as well. Like I, when I saw that it was coming in the fall, I was like, yes, I can't wait to see this yeah. shit. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to uh, take up too much of your time. I had just a couple of other questions. Um, one, like, what would you now tell like 19-year-old Tariq? Um, just, you know, off the rip, man, one of the first, one of the things that comes to mind, you know, if I had it to do over that I would do differently is, you know, just personal relationships. Like you are only as good as not even, now I, I would say the way, the way you treat people, but the way you treat people is subject to your own perception you're only as good, like your currency in this world is the way you make people feel, hmm. you know? So, you know, it, there may be times, points at which, you know, you feel like you've done your best or you, you've gone out of your way or above and beyond in this world. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean the person on the receiving end 
of that experience feels as such. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I, I would say, you know, just remain conscious and try to, you know, um, yeah, just always, you know, be tapped in to the way you make people feel. You know what I'm saying? Be charming, be, you know, sincere, be real, do the right thing. Uh, you know, even if your label is or, you know, some, the, uh, the brand that you're associated with or someone who you might think of, an entity that you feel is more powerful um, is advising you uh, not to. You know what I mean? Um, make those decisions and go with your gut, go with your heart um, and don't don't burn any bridges. You know what I'm saying? I feel like as a young person, I am, um, you know, because I have always been dealing with such uh, such trauma and I've, I've always sort of had my guard up um, yeah, I feel like I've, I've done just that. I've been guarded in my dealings and my, you know, interactions with, with people, um, often to a fault at times when I should have, you know, been more disarming and been more open and, you know what I'm saying? Maybe, you know, you know, hug myself less and, you know, put my arms down and open myself up to sort of receive, uh, more of life's blessings. You know what I mean? There is blocking one's blessings is, is very, very real. You know, mm. and, um, you know, you, you need to be mentally, spiritually and like literally physically open in order to fully receive, uh, you know, the brilliance of, 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 of life's blessings. You know what I mean? So I would, yeah, I would be more open. I would, I would tell 19 year old, you know, uh, Tariq to smile more and to, you know, to, to, to enter, go out and, and be, you know, uh, uh, less of an introvert. You know what I'm saying? If this is what you, if this is going to be your career choice, if this is what you want to do, it's going to require you to, you know, to be more of a people person. Um, 19 year old Tariq uh, would sign a record deal. So, the, you know, that's the age at which I sort of, you know, really started to go down this path. And, um, you know, if you're going to make those choices, if you want to be an artist, if you want to be a musician, and if you want to be in the business of, of music and, and, and performance, um, then you know uh, you have to embrace it fully and, and go all out and, and and just you know it's it's about the way you make you make people feel. So yeah, that's what that's what I would tell. Man, that's that's um, <laughs> that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, like what? So given everything that you've you've done, um, what is the legacy that you would like to leave? You know, I want I want my legacy to be, um, you know, I want it to be that of, of of greatness. I want to have inspired, you know, others. I want to have inspired art in the way that art has inspired me. You know, um, and I, and I feel it. You know, what I'm saying that legacy is being built. There are very many artists. Um, you know, they're, you know, literary greats. They're icons. They're, you know, what I mean, people who've already, you know, gone on to you know, to win their, their Pulitzer Prizes and, and, you know, and beyond who were inspired by me and by their experience with me, um, which is, you know, uh, uh, is humbling, you know what I'm saying? But it also, it brings that inspiration full circle. There are people who inspired me to do what it is that I do that I've gone on to inspire. And there's people that I've inspired to do what it is that they do who have, you know, come back and, you know, been, you know, huge inspirations in my life and in, in my process. So, um, 
I feel like you know, that's the legacy. And I just want to, you know, in a perfect world, well, the world isn't perfect, but ideally for me, I'd uh, you know just continue to build, to build upon that in, in an organic way. And, you know, I would, um, you know, I, I just would have people to know just how seriously uh, I've taken what it is that, that I do. You know what I'm saying? And, and um, yeah, I guess that's it, man. That's, that's it. That's a decent legacy for me. It sounds it sounds good, brother. Um, I one one thing you know we did that show back in January, Gabriel, which you know for me was an expansion of this larger concept. You know, the art of black men loving black men, yeah. and you know, hip hop. I think, you know, just culturally has been accused of you know kind of engendering this toxic masculinity, um, yeah. which you know, in my experience with you you know, I found you to be just that open and that vulnerable and, you know, loving to so many people that you encounter. Like, was that like an evolution or have you always been this way? And then secondly, like, is, 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 is hip hop changing? Is there space for that in hip hop in the future? Is that even necessary? Yeah. You know, I've always, you know, tried to, uh, be just completely open-minded, you know what I mean? I feel like um, no, you know, no two people are are the same. And, you know, I've always been about the business of, you know, just really encouraging whatever it is that, you know, people want to do whatever direction folks want to go in their lives, you know what I mean? Um, and I've also always been concerned with people who are, you know, with coming to the defense of, you know, people who are bullied, people who are, you know, unfairly antagonized or treated, you know, uh, with inequality, you know, on, on any level, you know, so that's always been sort of a, a thing of mine. And um, yeah, I, you know, I feel like uh, hip hop, um, I mean, not only hip hop, you know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, just the culture, you know what I'm saying? Uh, is is founded, was founded, was, you know, the, across the board almost founded in that same sort of machismo, that same sort of, you know, masculinity. And I feel like any any uh, one-sidedness, any, any you know, closed lensedness, any, any uh, uh, closed, closed-mindedness, uh, with regards to the world and with regards to humanity is, uh, is, is, is damning and, and is doing, you know, the rest of us a disservice. So, you know, in essence, it, it's all toxic. And mm. that, that's, that's not what, what I represent. You know what I mean? I've always, you know, um, in my mind, wanted to be a beacon of, of light and a beacon of, of hope and of inspiration. And, and I've always wanted to, you know, live as more of a vision of, of the future that I would like to see, you know? So in that, um, yeah, you know, I, I try and lead by example. And um, yeah, you know, everyone's not gonna always be on the same page and I, I would never expect that. But, you know, again, I, I, what I represent is, is myself and, and the Roots brand. And um, yeah, we've always been, you know, just open-minded in that way, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Every everybody's different. I try not to put anyone into a box because I know how it feels. Mm. You know? Well, brother, I would like to acknowledge you one for 
coming on the podcast. I think you are brilliant. And I really feel like you're actually just getting started. I feel like we're just getting to learn like the layers and the depth um, of Tariq Trotter for sure. Um, but I also want to acknowledge you just for your commitment to excellence and your discipline and your commitment to precision and this encyclopedic knowledge that you have. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to go back through this and literally like put links to all of these people that you mentioned, because you, like I said in the beginning, you are the Institute of Black Imagination. You are a walking encyclopedia of musical and artistic knowledge. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge you for all of that work that you put in, you continue to put in and, you know, to continuously engender your curious spirit. Um, and I really look forward to seeing what you have yet to show us. So thank you, thank you, thank you again. I really appreciate you, man. Thank you, thank you, man. Uh, to, to quote, I mean, I'm not that dude who walks around quoting myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I said that, but uh, <laughs> you know, just to, you know, on the same you know note, speaking about you know the, the, the Black institution, uh, and my most recent record that I put out, Thought Versus Everybody, I um, one of my lines is, if I'm a walking institution, I'm an HBCU, you mm. know? Um, so yeah, just to, you know, that, that I feel like that's that's a, a nice little nice little bookend button to sort of put on that. But um, yeah, man, thank you for having me, man. And, and congratulations to you and everything oh, that you're doing. Thank you, um, man. You, you're such an inspiration. And, you know, I have so much love and respect for you as, as an artist. And the, the times that we've worked together already have been awesome for me. And I really look forward to, uh, to us getting the chance to collaborate again, man. Thank you. Bro, it's happening for sure, like in a big way. I can't wait. I can't wait. All right, brother. Have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your day and, and be well. Thanks, man. You and too. be blessed. Thank All you. right, ciao. Man, oh man, that was so good. Like they say in the black church, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way? <laughs> so amazing. And to you, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to send it to one friend you think would really love this conversation. And as always, be sure to rate and review us over on iTunes. Shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast. And if you're a tweet person, you know, we are on the Twitter at Black Imagination, B-L-K Imagination. You know, slide into those DMs, tweet some of your favorite quotes with the hashtag processing the pod. And if you're able to drop a few bills to support this work, please click the support link in the show notes. That helps out so much. Thank you all so much for spending time with us today. And as always, remember, Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming. <laughs>